So hello and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. I am hosting today and today we have Adi on the panel. Hello, Adi. Hello. And our guest, Josh Adams. Hello. Not that Josh Adams, the other Josh Adams. <laughs> yeah, not that Josh Adams. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I didn't know we had two Josh Adams in kind of our community circles. So it's quite interesting to hear about that. Yeah, we're everywhere, man. We're just hiding out there. There's probably three. <laughs> This is not your first time getting confused with the other Josh Adams, right? Oh, no, no. If I'm, if I'm not mistaken, he was like also in the Ruby community, which is where I got my start. And it's been happening uh, you know, ever since I started. <laughs> so you think he gets the same thing? Like, oh, I thought you were the other Josh Adams. I highly doubt it. I think it's, it's like the reaction I get is, oh, Josh Adams. And then it's like, oh, oh, Josh Adams. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. So I hope he doesn't get the same reaction. <laughs> yeah, it'd be very, very weird. But yeah, so we were kind of chatting before the before the show. You're working at sorry, maybe I missed the company name again. I'd... Yeah, it's called Gridpoint. I work at a company called Gridpoint. We build solutions for energy management, like grid grid energy management solutions. Very cool stuff. We're in both the hardware and the software with Elixir via like NERVS and Phoenix. It's just a lot of fun. Started building stuff about. I just started back in October, so I'm by no means like a veteran in the space or anything like that. I'm learning along with like everybody else on the team for the most part. But yeah, real cool stuff, real smart people, real hard problems. I mean, you kind of glossed over a lot of details. I mean, how, how are you actually losing Elixir for all this stuff and why, why Elixir? Yeah, so details. So why Elixir is probably an answer that many guests have given for, for, for that uh, particular question. It's um, really good with concurrency. So we are managing what we just deployed, or I guess like launched our first client like a week ago. So, you know, cross our fingers. Uh, we're hoping that goes well in this initial phase, but we knew we needed something that could handle a lot of concurrency. So requests from a lot of different sensor data coming in at like very different times from various sites. And we need to be able to like take that throughput, ingest it sanely and uh, be able to respond to it as well, because it's not just like being able to get the data, it's being able to kind of like push data back out in like a way that makes sense and have like <laughs> order that makes sense too. You don't want to see like an AC like turn on and then say, hey, turn off right away. That kind of thing's probably going to really like confuse and, and probably frustrate folks uh, with their air conditioners, especially now that it's summertime and we're kicking off. So so that's the, the big why of, of Elixir is that it handles concurrency. Basically, it's like baked into when you're learning the language, you could do it even when you're hiring like junior folks, they're going to learn how to program in a way that's like, friendly towards managing concurrent messaging. The other big reason I kind of just mentioned is that, you know, when you're hiring folks, it's a pretty fun language to, to work with. I think that at least the two of you would agree with me on that one. And uh, it's a it's a, it's a language that I found folks, even with like less experience, are pretty eager to kind of like dip their toes into and learn. And interestingly, it seems to also be a language they can really kind of like, if, they're, if they do have that interest, they kind of like, sink their teeth into and they're able to become productive pretty quickly in a way that maybe Haskell or something, there might be some sort of a learning curve there that <laughs> even if you're like pretty good at it, there's probably a lot of pitfalls or, you know, probably something really cool, but it's going to take a while to get there. Whereas, you know, with its like syntactic sugar and, and base basis on, well, I mean, Jose, I, I think took a lot of inspiration from Ruby, obviously. It's, it's kind of very beginner friendly. So hiring, concurrency, and uh, the community is probably the last part there. It's very active, uh, a lot of bright folks in the community, and a lot of active development on big projects like Phoenix make it to where it's like, you know, an exciting and I think probably well-chosen tool for, for the job that we're trying to do. Yeah, there's literally no other language that hits that criteria. I mean, there is a web framework which allows you to quickly 
at a, a backend UI very, you know, without very little work. Phoenix, like Josh said, like productive, right? And do all of the embedded stuff. Maybe Python comes close, but then the concurrency and ease of scalability isn't there, right? Literally no other language even meets that criteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I think it's really quite interesting. You also can do like the NURBS part, right? So, I mean, not many people I know are actually using NURBS. And so like, how has the experience been? So here's where we're getting into uh, my lack of being a veteran. So we actually have, have like split the teams off into like as companies do into like domains of expertise. And so we've got like a, a team that's like responsible for the hardware side of things and the firmware. And I am not on that team, but uh, I can kind of speak towards how it's been working with them. It's nice to have kind of a single language that we're talking about and they understand what a process is. We understand what a process is. We can kind of speak the same language when we're talking to each other and kind of forming requirements. I have kind of grokked a little bit of the code on their side of things. I've peaked and cruised, but, and during my time doing that, it's it's readable. Like I kind of understand what's going on. There's a lot of the same things there, structs, maps, you know, what, <laughs> what have you. So as far as like working with them, it's been pretty nice. I think that at other places I've heard of, <laughs> you know, kind of like working with folks that are doing a lot of like lower level languages and you got to, there's like a translation layer that you kind of have to go through to make sure that you guys are kind of speaking the, speaking the same language and, and trying to get to, to your goal. And you kind of bypass that in having you know, the same basis for, for writing firmware and software, uh, like the web app uh, that we're building. Yeah. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm more, <laughs> I guess, involved in like we specifically at, we're building a, a Phoenix web app that's have heavily leveraging live view to kind of like take in these live events and respond to them and have like a, a live kind of like UI for, for the state of things in, across various sites. Okay. Yeah, I mean, how did you even get into Elixir? This is quite interesting. It seems like you and me both have a similar background. We kind of start off in Ruby and then somehow we went over to Elixir. Yeah. How did it kind of come onto your radar? Yeah, great question. So I can't take the credit for this one. I didn't, I wasn't just like uh, looking for a language to tackle, but it was actually, uh, you've had a, a guest on, on before. His name's Eric Sullivan. And I worked with both Eric and Adi at my um, previous company. And Kissam was the name of the company. And we were looking for adopting a language that would help us with some of these problems. The main one being concurrency <laughs> that we were running into with, with Ruby and the threads and things like that, that one runs into. Uh, not only that, we the company that we worked at was, you know, love the company. I can't say enough things, like good things about the leadership, everything like that. We were working in a model where we kind of promote from within we had a lot of folks went from disparate or like backgrounds that kind of got into programming from like, well, I was a physics major, for example. There are people with like degrees in computer science, but there were only a few of them. There are people with like art backgrounds and it was awesome. It was like this beautiful melting pot of like ideas and different ways to approach things, but we didn't have a lot of experience and concurrency in Ruby is something that I think it takes a bit of experience to know that you're doing it right. So Eric Sullivan in his uh, in, in his wisdom, it was like the first. I guess we were we were taking a look at I think three languages. Adi, you can correct me if I'm wrong. There was Clojure, I think Go, and Elixir, and we ended up choosing Elixir for probably a bunch of different reasons that Eric could probably explain a lot better than me because at the time I was a bit of a noob. But I think that its syntactic similarity to Ruby was a huge selling point. You know, that it was like written by somebody that was like so active in, in Ruby and <laughs> would be a lot easier for folks who were since we're promoting from within kind of like if, if we wanted to transition Ruby developers over kind of it's, it, the ease in, in getting folks like up that learning curve would be just that much like better. And yeah, we piloted, we, we <laughs> developed a, a real small focused web app that built PDFs and we did it 
really quickly that we, meaning Eric, I learned along the way. Adi's <laughs> computer at one point was like the uh, workhorse and we, we tested, I don't even remember, uh, but we wanted to see kind of like the limits of <laughs> how, how we could um, spawn like asynchronous like ways to, or like processes to, to kind of like parse a PDF and like build something or well, not parse a PDF, but like parse a CSV, build a PDF. And uh, Adi's computer, I just remember it's like late at night or, or early in the morning or something. And we, I just heard his fan, he had this beefy computer. He was like, he was he had the, at the company, I think the beefiest computer. He was notorious for like getting some, some radical machine. And I just remember hearing the fan kind of like spin up like a jet engine and then like, oh, it crashed. <laughs> and then, yeah. And then the screen went black and I was just like, ah. Oh. And then we gotta we gotta make sure we don't do this to like you know actual Sarah's out in the wild. But it was really cool to see that like if you if you wanted to like if you wanted to do do something real real asynchronous with it, it could do it. it you're, you're limited to your resources, but uh, but it, but it let you kind of like do that from the get go. It was really cool. Um, yeah, that's uh, that's how I got into Elixir. Was this like kind of fortuitous? Oh, anybody interested in like starting up a new language? And Adi and I raised our hands, and Eric allowed us to join him. And uh, yeah. Pilot, the pilot was successful and adopted it more broadly in a few other projects um, at the company. And I, I kind of never looked back. I was I was doing a lot of management at, at my previous company, so not not as much coding for, for for a lot of my time there. But yeah, it was it was something that I really wanted to get back into. And now I'm just like a, a developer, so I'm doing a lot less management, which is really nice. It's nice to manage, but it's also nice to kind of have your own coding time. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting you talk about how. I guess the syntax is so similar to Ruby, but at the same time, it's kind of not, right? It's, it is, but it's better. It's like Ruby, but better. I think it's it's like some of the same things. Like, oh, not everything has like a do and an end in Ruby. <laughs> let's fix that. Like, you know, let's let's kind of have that like wispy, you know, there's there's, there's a concrete boundaries that your eye can kind of lock in on. And it just makes it a lot easier to kind of figure out what's going on. Yeah. I mean, more so, like the thing that stuck out to me is how in Ruby everything's an object, but yeah. in, in this, there's no objects, right? Yeah. Really different. That to me, I think, would take a long time for anybody to really understand how things work. Yeah. The switch to the functional paradigm from like that object oriented uh, <laughs> kind of Ruby based approach was definitely one of the things that I caught myself on. I was trying to call, I was trying to, I think when I was first walking through a book, I was trying to find functions on a struct that like I could call. And it's just like, this isn't very easy. Why would they want, why would they do this? And I was like, oh, because they don't want you to do that. That's why they do it. <laughs> it's, it's a function. So everything kind of like, you know, it's f of something and you pass something into it, you get a result out and you don't have to worry about things mutating because you did that. Sometimes you do, but like you kind of know what you're going to get if, you, if you're doing stuff like that. So yeah, I think the immutability part of it, because I had gotten so used to all the annoying things that you have to do when you're writing tests uh, with Ruby and, and trying to work around like state, <laughs> it was kind of a breath of fresh air once that clicked and and I got more used to kind of like functions as transformations that kind of like don't mutate uh, state or they, you know, for the most part. Yeah, I mean, how was that for some time where you had to get used to like, okay, yeah, I'm doing transformations, but what does that mean? Oh, that means that if I didn't kind of... Mm, I don't know. I always use the word catch, right? Because it always returns a new new thing that's been changed slightly, right? Mm-hmm. So like if you don't assign it to a variable, then you lose it, right? I, I always have to talk to new developers and kind of tell them, oh yeah, you need to make sure you actually assign that to a variable or else it's going to be gone. And it takes them a long time to understand that. And that's really hard to explain to somebody. Yeah, definitely. It's like the, the blessing <laughs> and the curse, right? So it's like harder to teach because I think a lot of folks do kind of 
come into programming from an object-oriented background. At least that's my like experience. It's like you're, you're usually taking, you're not going the other way around usually. It's like, oh yeah, I've only got functional programming experience. So like getting through that, um, the, the bad, I don't want to say bad habits, but the habits that they have when they're working in that other paradigm is it's definitely a little bit of a, of a tricky thing. But once you, I think the thing that I've found that really illustrates kind of, kind of that point and, and helps folks learn is kind of, trying to engineer the code that you're writing around the pipeline. I thought that was one of the coolest things I still do. Just that little pipe operator kind of like tells the story of everything that you're doing to it and how it transforms, uh, you know, the inputs as it goes through. And if you're not catching it, like, yeah, it's just going to go, go back into the ether somewhere. <laughs> you're not really caring unless you're doing stuff with state in which, yeah, it won't. Then you just like make a call to the database to see how it changed things, but, or, or to whatever you're doing, that's or whatever. <laughs> well, it's funny that you mentioned the word state, right? I don't think I've ever used that word so much until I went into Elixir because then you start talking about state all the time as opposed to before you're talking about objects, right? Mm, yeah, they are. I feel like they're two, two sides of the same coin to me a little bit. Like the object, it's just like where the state lives in, well, maybe it's not just an Elixir thing. I'm not like, oh, yeah, I don't have like an encyclopedia of languages to pull from with experience, but like... From my from the experience that I do have, it seems like the state in in Elixir, maybe this is a inherited functional programming in general, is like it's bound. It's like contextually, like yeah, the database stores state. And if you're not operating like in a database and querying the database, it's like you're just working with functions, and that's kind of the beauty. You don't have objects that that like you're you're updating the state on. You can, but you have to like bind those to its variables to like do that and rebind them. And you're not you don't have to worry about like yeah, it's like the state of, of the structures is like inherent to them. It's not like something that like you have to worry about coming back to because you're reassigning it. Mm-hmm. And I kind of maybe it was uh, long-winded and, and maybe it didn't make sense of trying to figure out what with that. <laughs> I think it made sense. I think how I look at it for like these modern functional languages is that state is anything that's outside of like a procedure or a method or a function, right? And in functional programming, at least when you write a function, you don't assume something is living out of the function. Elixir, I mean, obviously has processes and agents and all that stuff, right? But yeah, I mean, all the variables that you send in, there's like kind of like a, you use a Haskell or like referential transparency where, you know, you know, everything within the function is within the function, right? Mm-hmm. That's how I at least look at it. But I, I think you, you you're saying that state object is where a state lives is yeah, right, for all objects in their language. So that's, yeah, mm-hmm. at least all of the ones I know. <laughs> all 300 of the ones you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, the other thing I'm kind of picking into my mind about when you kind of learn a new language is, yeah, okay, syntax is a huge one, but once you have a paradigm shift like this from object-oriented over to functional, I mean, that's that's one. But the other thing, too, that I think makes things even more confusing is OTP. That's like another huge thing that nobody else has in this whole, like, supervision tree i don't know is there any, is there another language that has something like that i guess maybe you do that at like a yeah. i mean ops kind of way right right so right this one up. it's i mean it being part of application layer i guess go has something like that but yeah nothing like the supervision tree exists in other languages yeah yeah how is that because that's like what 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 is a gen server <laughs> that i mean obviously it makes sense now if you break it down but if you just look at the word at first you're like, what the heck is that yeah, that one took me a bit to, to kind of like reason with the, the generic server. I feel like it's because I didn't realize that gen stood for generic for a little while. And I was just like, it's generating a server. Like, what is this doing? It's like a service. Uh, anyway, it kind of is. But like, yeah, it, it is a little little funky. It, but at the same time, it's like one of those things that because it's extracted into its 
its own like behavior. It's, <laughs> you don't, I don't know. It's, it's that way of like managing state where this thing is like, yeah, it's a server that manages like state in some way or does something. And you don't have to worry about structs doing that, which I think are like having value objects be kind of value objects is, is incredibly nice. Is it value objects? Is that the right word you use? Yeah, I use that word. Um, I'm trying, I think I've definitely heard that. For, I'm not, again, I'm not a computer scientist or anything like that, but I think that a value object from, I can't even tell you where I read it, um, but it's like an object or a structure that you can pass from one thing to another. It's instead of having like, you know, a function that takes in an X and a Y to compute like the area of like a rectangle, you can pass in like an object that has the X and the Y on it. So you're, you're you know, or a struct in, in Elixir land, so that you're passing around a single entity and it's a way to kind of reduce the like area of functions. It's got other benefits too, and then you know that what you're wrapping, like you have a struct, all the benefits of the struct, you're kind of like giving a name to, to the like values that you're wrapping and co-locating them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I don't know, Adi, that is, is, a, is a value object or something? I don't use that term, so I don't know. Yeah. I actually don't know what it means. I've, I think I've only heard a few people use it, you being one of them. Oh. All right, cool. <laughs> that makes sense, though, what you're saying. Like, I guess, like, encapsulating a bunch of values into a, a struct or a bigger structure for... I mean, that also gives that type advantage to type inference. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've been kind of... I don't know how you say this. Yeah, I've been reviewing some code from somebody who came from a big Java background in... I did teach them that, hey, you know, maybe you should think about this as like a series of steps and use a pipeline kind of feature. And I think that clicked for them. Mm-hmm. But the question is, sometimes it's like you don't really know how to name that thing that's a collection of all your data. And so I don't know why, but it really made me angry when he started like appending the word struct at the end of every <laughs> struct, <laughs> which is just weird for me. <laughs> I don't know. Is it, I mean, how, how do you like, so you call that a value object. Let's just use that as the term, right? So, you know, what, how do you actually come up with a name for something like that? Do you guys have any ideas about what's like a good way to come up with a name for something like that? No, man. Adi probably has a better answer to this. I feel like naming is, I forget who, who, who said this, so but hard. it's like the, the hardest things in computer science or like yeah. naming things and, and validating caches. And <clears throat> I don't know if that's the whole true, but naming is something that, especially for somebody like me, I, I get like bogged in the details. Naming is like, well, but it's also fun because when you land on the right name, everything just makes so much more sense. Nothing kind of like is more frustrating than seeing like thing A and thing B in a test. You're like, well, what? What are you testing? Thing A is like, what is what is thing A? There are ways to do it. Don't get me wrong. Like, where you're kind of like sequencing names, but yeah, the name. My my strategy for naming structs is just to be as like close to what that struct is in its domain uh, as possible. So like, if I'm throwing a change that into something, it's like a change that. If I'm throwing a, a like a generic structure, then maybe struct, <laughs> but that's like very rare. Um, Usually, yeah, if I'm, if I'm like building up a pipeline, then, then I'll just name that, like, you know, here's what I'm passing in as like the argument to the function. I don't know. How about you, I think usually the module, the struct is based off of as a good variable name, but I mean, that again, come with a good name for, for the module is also a challenge, right? My, Josh is my naming guy. So actually, I did want to bring up this thing before I forget, uh, since you're talking about the whole pipeline thing. And I mentioned a couple of times, have you guys like, I guess I'm with this whole CRC thing that Bruce Tate talks about, construct, reduce, compose? I think, or something like that. Oh, convert, construct, reduce, convert. Uh, this is really awesome blog post. I think it's called Learning Elixir. It's all reduce. And like I have seen, it, it doesn't really, ha- it didn't really have an impact on me. 
to be honest, right? It didn't really, didn't really help me understand anything better, but I've seen it have firsthand impact on like so many junior engineers. Like it doesn't, pipeline didn't make sense to them and they read that or people I mentor, I tell them about that and they're like, oh, that makes so much more sense. I don't see why because it doesn't make sense. It didn't really help my understanding much, but I did want to bring it up because a lot of, you know, beginners listen to this podcast. Uh, check out Learning Elixir. It's all reduced or something like that. <laughs> There's like a blog post that Bruce Tate wrote. Yeah, I, I'm not I sure if you guys that. have heard of that. I remember that term, but now it, are those all the right words in, in the name? It's something like that. I don't remember. I, I think it's construct, reduce, either compose or convert. That's the last one. But the whole idea is like, in Elixir, everything can be built with that pi- that kind of methodology where you create a struct first and pass it along for you know reduction to a bunch of processes and convert it to the final return value that a function kind of needs. It feels I don't know if it to you guys it feels obvious to you. It felt very obvious to me, but to like a beginner in Elixir, it felt you know life changing. Yeah, I think it's like one of those things where because you're when I did start building pipelines, like I think one of the holy grails of this is like plug and like that kind of like really clicked for me it's just like oh i'm I'm sending this like structure down it's got fields and i'm just like modifying it slightly and if it's like in a pipeline the first argument in that next function is just the thing that i'm spitting out from the line before it and so i'm like sequentially kind of like modifying or not uh, this plug as i go down this plug con (laughs) and it was just like that helped it really click for me it is like you're like taking a bunch of operations and you're you're reducing to a single result based off of like a bunch of inputs. So that's I will have to read that blog post. And I haven't I haven't. So that sounds pretty cool. So I have a, a a question for you. Do you prefer to do a reduce within a reduce or a map within a map and then pull out nil values? I am a big fan of reduce. I maybe use it too too much or more more than I should. I just, or it's probably not great, but I, I kind of put together a, a live view function recently that uh, <laughs> that we had to get something done. It had to be doable. And the way that we had to, it was for something we didn't, Think we were going to have to build. Let's like I'll put it that way. So it was like one of those last minutes. Like oh, we need this. Oh, okay. So I kind of came up with this thing that's probably not the most maintainable, but it shouldn't be there for very long. So you know, shouldn't be there for very long. Throwing air quotes in. So I basically took in a socket, you know, structure, and the way that I I add errors to it is I have a function that's like a generic, you know, add add error to socket function, and it just like updates and assigns value that has errors on it. And I reduce over the socket in a bunch of different places. And the way that I make it sane to read is if I've got like a nested reduction, <laughs> like reduce within a reduce, I tend to find it more, much more readable to kind of like throw that into its own function that then spits out the result of like the reduction in a way that's, you know, sane. Um, so I've got like in this live view, which I'm not advocating it for as being the right way to do things at all. <laughs> but I do have like a function that like has, I don't know, like four or five levels of like reducing <laughs> nestedness. And uh, that's, you know, it's actually pretty easy to read because because of the way that it's written. But it's, I don't know, I, I don't know if it's the right way to do things. Uh, it works, you know, when I do need to like match on nils or something, if I'm like going through I do like to leverage the pattern matching and the function, like in an anonymous function. So like if you're coming through and you want to do something one way, if like a value is nil, you just handle that in its own like pattern match on the nil case and you still have the function. You don't need to kind of pull the map, the, the nils out. I think it's 
I think it's more performant too going that way because you're kind of hitting it like at the time that you're you're running into that. But um, I guess that doesn't really pose too much of an issue unless you're dealing with real big collections. Yeah, so the reason I brought this up is because I'm, I'm having this kind of big discussion with uh, with a team, and they seem to love doing like mapping and then mapping inside of there, and and both and it ends up having to like have like a multi dimensional list. So then they have to flatten, and then they still have to pull out nils. Mm. And I'm like, oh my god, this is so hard to understand. And as with with the reduce, it's pretty easy, right? So instead of putting a nil, like what they deliberately put nil values in there. And strip the nil values out later on. So it's like, what instead of just putting a nil value in there to strip out, like, why not just reduce it and then just return your accumulated value? Doesn't really make sense. But yeah, it's been interesting. That's why I wanted to ask the question. And, and I think that most Elixir developers are probably going my route or the route that I think you and I both think about, which is like, why not just reduce it? Especially performance stuff that comes to mind. Sorry, Adi, you were about to say something. I mean, I, I was saying, I think, I think to me, I mean, I think it doesn't really matter. I think as long as if they write the nested map, like what Josh was saying, like if it's like readable, you know, if the map function is put in a function with a good name, which makes it obvious what that function is doing and for every variable in the list. And yes, yeah, sure, performance, but I mean, like by the time we play with big enough connection uh, collections in Elixir with Enum, and but, but you know, if it's big enough, the performance is an issue. Memory will probably be an issue before that, right? So I, I feel it's more, re- I definitely lean more towards like readability, the how they how they go through the pipeline it's very subjective like how mm-hmm. people think it really depends on that and that's like the flaw of like the de- the what's a, like declarative world we're in right like the declarative language like the, something like rust or uh, c there's like less ways of doing things that seem right but in elixir you can make a really terrible you know enum especially enum operation because there's so many functions in enum it's crazy right you can lose all yeah. collection of those functions and not even have a performance impact and make you know, different things look correct hmm. yeah i mean the other thing i've been trying to instill into them is like they, they love to do a lot of like the plus plus between lists like a lot so instead of building like what they actually were doing is somehow they were actually building up a list backwards and then they but then they thought, okay, I can actually fix this by doing plus plus instead of just doing the reverse. Mm. So it's 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 been it's been fun to kind of see new people come to the language and see you know how they write code, what's their thought process, and also for, I don't know about for you guys, but for me, I can I can see usually where this person came from, what language was before. So a lot of the guys are JavaScript developers, so I can definitely see like what I would see in JavaScript. I remember looking at Python code from another project, and I was like, this looks like Java. And I asked my manager at the time, who was a big Java fan, like, did you write this? Yeah, I did. I'm like, because Python's supposed to have like snake case and you wrote this <laughs> in uh, camel case. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's part of best practices. You know, like that's 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 already established in the community. That's not subjective. So <laughs> Yeah, so it's just interesting to kind of see it. And 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 also sometimes like when people make mistakes that I wouldn't make, it's it's just usually I ask them like why, like what was the thought process? Because I, I would love to hear, you know, like those ideas about like what where was your mind going when you thought about like this? Why did you write the code like that? And usually you hear some pretty interesting answers and it helps you kind of understand how can I explain concepts to people like, oh, okay, that's what your thought was. Okay, well, you need to think like this because blah, 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 blah. Although I understand why you think like that. Today, I asked somebody something like that and I was like, why did you write code like that? And like, I don't know, I was just trying stuff. And I'm like, oh, I don't know how to be there with that one, but this is just interesting to hear this kind of replies back. Hmm. Yeah, I think I've done, I recently um, t- 
trained, actually, the company, Gridpoint, is very passionate about getting Elixir into like everybody's kind of purview. And so we actually have trained our QA engineers to write really basic Elixir. And so I kind of like trained, I, I kind of like spearheaded that training. And it was really interesting to see folks with like very little programming experience kind of like hop into Elixir as like some of them, their first real like language. I just needed to teach them how to, you know, write wallaby tests, like really simple wallaby tests. And so going from like zero, like I've literally never taken computer science or anything like that, like any courses or read about it to like getting them to write wallaby was very interesting. There are a lot of things that, you know, I take for granted or I think is just like kind of obvious. Uh, <laughs> And it's totally not. And it's like totally reasonable for folks to like think some way if like they, they just experience, <laughs> they've experienced things in the way that they have. And there was a lot of, even, even though they didn't have an object oriented background, I, I find that a lot of people think in the way of like ownership, like things have, have like attributes that are tied to them. So like I'm trying to say like, you know, this thing dot first name is here, but it's not working. It's like, oh no, you gotta grab the first name from it or something. No. Yeah, it's really interesting to see like how, how different people approach problems in ways that aren't wrong. It's just they have to kind of like shift their, their the way they're kind of like viewing it, their perspective. I mean, you didn't pull an audience say, "Oh, this is your first programming language. Let's build Phoenix." Mm. That's usually his style for teaching people programming. Yeah, not quite. I didn't want to spook him too much. <laughs> I don't know, Adi. How, how does this method work for you? Does it work out? Hey, my wife is a tech lead within two years. So saying worked pretty well in that case. Interesting. So how long it took you to rebuild Phoenix or what? I'm just curious. There's a lot of stuff involved in Phoenix, right? <laughs> Obviously, I'm just joking with you, Adi. I just thought that's a very like demanding thing to bring to a beginner. All right, let's build this really great framework right now from scratch. You ready? Here we go. It is kind of like a different way, though. I think Adi, too, from what I know of him, sorry, Adi, I think I might have interrupted you. Adi really enjoys teaching and really enjoys intuitively understanding things from my, from my experience. It's not just like understanding it. It's like building up an intuition for that thing. And I and, and he, I think, are pretty big fans of like Feynman. Like he's a Richard Feynman, that's like a physicist. And one of his like really big ideas that he preached was like, you can't explain it to somebody that doesn't understand it. You really don't really understand it yourself. And so taking something as complex <laughs> and specific as like building a web framework and trying to teach that to somebody with less experience probably was as much that like, you know, here, let's get you better at this language as it was at here, let me get better at this language for Adi and, and probably a lot of fun for him and, and difficult in like trying to convey web servers, like you said, Alan, are, are really complex. Building <laughs> that from scratch, really complex. So yeah, it's probably much of a, you know, scratch, scratching both backs there. <laughs> Wait, you're saying you're, you're both fans of, of Richard Feynman. Is that, is that what I heard? Yes. Yep. You know, I love Richard Feynman, but I th more so think about his weird experiences where things just kind of happened to work out. Do you know the story about where he just kind of wanted to sound smart and pointed out a map and said, oh, this doesn't look good. And, but he actually had no idea what he was talking about and, and actually pointed to something that was correct. You didn't hear this one? Mm -mm. I don't know, but I, I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I read one of his books and I was like, and he was talking about all his life stuff, especially when he uh, picked up women. He had a very weird style that seemed to work out for him. <laughs> Yeah, he's just a weird guy, but it, it's interesting. Like again, uh, he like one of the things was they gave him this map of like a government facility, like they wanted to build, and they asked him to check it out. And if there was anything, something wrong that he saw, and he had no idea what he was reading, and he just randomly pointed something and said, "I think you should check this out. This doesn't look right," because he wanted to sound smart. And actually, he picked out something correct that was wrong. So his 
got a really interesting background. If, if, if you guys at home never heard of this guy, it's definitely check him out. It's, I don't know what to say about him. That's what I know about that guy. Is it surely or joking? Mr. Feynman, are talking about that? It's like yeah, a, yeah, that's uh, the one. Okay, okay, yeah. Hmm. I have that book and I just have real stories from his, right? I think he wrote that. He wrote that book, right? I think it's like edited, but yeah, it's like a collection of random memories, basically. Or at least what I, I haven't read it, but it's it's on my it's on my list. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Well, the book I the book I would recommend. I mean, it's our pick picks time yet. It's the Feynman lectures and physics, but that's the thing. What Josh was talking about, right? Making something intuitive, right? It's so big. Like one of the things that stands out is like you know he would derive some of these physics equations without using well, very minimal math. Like one of the equations he derived was second law of thermodynamics, and I was like kind of mind blown. Like just how he can use intuition to come up with relations in mathematics, like proportions in mathematics, and come up with like most of the equation. And that really, I think it's a great, great example, because I think that's like the goal uh, when I learn and when I try to teach, right? And yes, obviously, you're right, it could be overwhelming. But the people I kind of like taught this to, like in front of whom I've built rails of Phoenix, like small versions of those, I think it was obviously out gauge if they're ready for it. <laughs> most of the times, I was leading on a maybe, but, you know, I kind of gave them the benefit of the doubt and it ends up working out because, you know, once you build that intuition of something, it automatically fuels the confidence, motivation to do more. And oftentimes, you know, they end up getting better than I was at that stage because, you know, they kind of have a lot more confidence than I had. I just kind of want to go back over what you're talking about. I think I do something similar to you, except for I don't build Phoenix. I just kind of deconstruct part of it because I think it's good to kind of show like, because people are like, oh, where did this thing come from? And how come, you know, a big thing I like to show is if you go to that web, the underscore web.ex file that gets created where you, where you do the U stuff. I think that's huge to show to people because then it, it takes away some of the magic that people usually see. Like, how come when I do a controller, this works? This is like, well, look, it's actually importing this and also using this thing and, and all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's really helpful to kind of help people to understand that actually this is just Elixir code. It's not like something crazy. It's just Elixir code, right? Mm-hmm. Agree. I think it's just layers of it, right? Like, I think what's so great about Elixir again is that, you know, the layer in Phoenix, the layers of mystic magic is not as deep as like Rails. Rails would take a lot more digging than just looking at a underscore web file uh, to figure out what's really happening thanks to so many more options Ruby provides in terms of metaprogramming than Elixir. Yeah, I do not miss the, uh, what was it, the phrase automagical? I don't, I don't miss those, uh, those moments where you're just like, how is this working? Oh, I guess I have to rock like the Rails source for you know a couple hours to figure out why <laughs> all built on method missing i for- almost forgot about that I- <laughs> yeah but i mean sometimes i do miss that magicness you know i, I do miss that things you could just add functions and and, and life would be interesting <laughs> yeah there was i don't think i was ever really bit too many times by like random stuff happening because I didn't have really too many complicated apps, but I do miss a lot of kind of the convenience functions and things you would get in in, in Rails and Ruby. So that's definitely something I miss. Like the inflections and things like that you could have. Those are really nice. Hmm. Yeah. I was going to say, Alan, you could always like unimport kernel in your Mexican config and import a kernel and define handle for handle undefined function, right? That's like Elixir's method missing. Yeah. There you go. It's Ruby. <laughs> yeah, maybe there's... I mean, <laughs> because you can doesn't mean you should, right? Yeah, I'm gonna have nightmares. Right, <laughs> have nightmares that folks heard that sentence. No. <laughs> we, we can cut that out. We will, we will refrain from saying stuff like that. But yeah, yeah somebody really like absolutely demolished the dev environment. So now have that happen. <laughs> yeah, they're redefining kernel. Great. <laughs> yeah. 
kind of coming back around, I'm kind of curious with your training, how long does it take for somebody to kind of go from zero to pretty, I wouldn't want to use the word confident, but pretty, hmm, what is the word for that? Capable, I guess you could say, with Elixir and some of your training when you're kind of passing on new colleagues? Yeah. So I think everything, like if I'm learning something as I age, is that everybody is their own person and everybody, there's just such an individualized, like everybody's like product of like where they're coming from. And that, that is different for everybody. So I, I don't think that there is an answer for that. That's just like, oh yeah, it's like a month. I can say that there's some intersection of interest, like time, like avail- availability in their like life to engage with the material. And if it's, if we're talking about like, we have a static, like zero that they're starting from, I think those are the two important things. It's just like their, their passion or like their, their, their willingness to kind of like dig into this themselves and, and, and figure it out. And, uh, you know, I don't think I play a huge part in that if I'm teaching folks. So that's like, if I, if I get somebody that's super passionate about it, it's, it tends to be a lot easier to kind of get them up to speed. Uh, what I will say is if you do get that kind of intersection of passion and availability, like of time to, to, to learn, uh, to dedicate to learning at least, it can be, I mean, getting folks up to speed with writing wallaby tests from like literally never having written a line of Elixir took a couple months. Pretty, pretty like rapid. I, like I, I kind of pivoted mostly into that um, teaching. So it was a pretty intensive, you know, starting from what is Elixir. We kind of followed um, exorcism for a lot of it. I'm very grateful that that resource exists. It's a huge because... You know, I can try to explain something and I might say it in a way that clicks, but again, everybody is, is, is their own person and it might not have clicked. So having like a, a variety of ways to see the same information, I think is super important. And exorcism kind of like gives that, I think, and the material there is just written really well. And, and the whole idea of it, like being something that you're writing tests or you're getting the tests to pass, I think is like a huge thing. It was, that was pretty easy for the QA folks that I was training to get on board with because their whole like goal is to, to make sure that things are passing tests in one way or another. But I think for folks that aren't like as into TDD, it's, it's, it's pretty great to see that being kind of front and center. Yeah, I'd say like a couple months for folks with zero experience that are passionate about it, perhaps longer for folks that have less time in their life to dedicate to learning or are perhaps like, you know, less interested in, in, in learning for good reasons. Yeah, kids, whatever. <laughs> yeah yeah I mean, and this is also including all the otp stuff or what i mean i guess in because the language itself is not that big i would say yeah no i didn't go into really otp at all <laughs> i mean I, I kind of just like described like what you know hey there's this thing called those feet don't don't go to that exercise <laughs> i gave them like a yeah you know extra credit if you want to like learn about that but we're just going to get to structs like enum like basically enum and 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 structs and, and figuring out like how that works before you get there, you got to know, like, you know, the, the kernel operators and like that, you know, plus, like, what does a plus sign do? <laughs> uh, string, you know, these kinds of things uh, and very basic. So I think another thing that you had asked in your initial question was like capable. And I would say that that has its own parameters that you have to take into account, like capable of what? Capable of like writing a gen server. That's probably going to take a, a decent bit longer because there's a lot of foundation that you kind of have to build there in order. At least if you want folks to build build something correctly, I would, I would think that that's going to be a little bit more of like an advanced part of that curriculum. Have you ever gone over the difference between the uh, double and triple equals in Elixir? I actually did. Yeah, I think one of the first things that I was doing was again I wanted to like kind of give them play around, like open up IEX and, and kind of go through and see what these these operators do. So like, you know, one plus one is two. One equals equals one. You know, those kinds of things. 
but then I gave them like a you know a struct and get say equals equals. Oh yeah, sure. That that if they have the same you know attributes like that's that's great. Then you do like equals equals equals, and if they have like a different something about it differs, <laughs> uh, but you can't see it kind of off the top. It just looks the same. Uh, that really kind of blows minds sometimes. Uh, it's fun, but it's like a you know strict equality. They, they you know that was something that didn't seem like. I remember when I learned the analog in Ruby, it was like oh that's a little weird, but. They seem to pick it up. Maybe they're smarter than I am uh, pretty quickly. I've actually never used triple equals. I saw it in code. I thought it was a mistake. Yeah. Did you ever use it in your actual code before or no? I don't think that I have, but I think I could see its utility like in very mm-hmm. specific situations. But yeah. I used to have a very small project where it was a production app, but I needed to validate something as a integer, not a float one. <laughs> and I didn't want to import Ecto or do any weird type stuff. So I think that was only, you know, because it also validates type. So, yeah. Mm. Okay, that's interesting. I, I guess I could see for that case, but even so, like for most things, you just want to say, well, is one equal to 1.0, right? Yeah, I think that's the no, I remember floats are kind of goofy, right? So is that actually <laughs> even true? I don't know. Uh, I think we've been doing a lot of stuff with like decimals, floats, integers at my current company. And I never thought about using triple equals. I still think I'd go with just kind of like conversions or, or pattern matching on types um, in the functions clause. But that is a cool thing to think about. I was trying to like reach for a case where I'd use it. But yeah, of course I have one. Obviously. <laughs> Yeah. And, and this kind of goes back to what I was saying before. The reason I think I saw Trip was because it was a JavaScript developer who wrote that code. And they were just checking to see if two UUIDs are the same. Mm. So I guess better safe than sorry, then really you're making sure that that's really equal to each other. Yeah, I'm trying to think of when that would not work with double equals. Was it just a string? <laughs> they were, I mean, they, they basically are kind of like two strings to a certain extent, unless you go into the database, I believe. Yeah. Uh, like if they were wrapping, I didn't know if they were like wrapping it in their own struct or something for the UUID, or if they were like actually. No, yeah. it was just it was dot notation <laughs> double equals or triple equals. Sorry. Yeah, to be honest, I don't see the advantage of it. Not saying that there isn't isn't one, but I think that that is one extra character stroke. So one step closer to carpal tunnel in, in my book. <laughs> Yeah, I, again, like I'd never overread this one. It's really just what I what I was saying to you. It's just like, okay, I'm from JavaScript. I need to do a equality check. I should always use triple equals. Mm. Did they have a lot of uh, it came from variable bindings like this in their in their code too? <laughs> no, that's a good that's a good point. I'm I'm glad that didn't happen. But the, like I said, lots of maps within maps within maps with with a flatten and then <laughs> removing nails. Yeah, so. Okay, cool. I mean, I know one thing in Ruby, triple equals doesn't work perfectly. I know in Elixir, if you do one triple equals 1.0, it returns false and it returns true in Ruby. And I never really got deep d- deeper into it deep enough to like retain the reason. <laughs> but I just know that it was weird. And I just want to share that here. Java, I think JavaScript has a pretty solid triple equals. And Elixir has a pretty good triple equals too, but I know Ruby, Python has something weird stuff too, right? Where they use the object ID and stuff. So. Oh, it's like a memory thing? Yeah, I think it's the stack thing, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> even stronger equality. Yeah. Maybe? Well, I think you can, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe. I yeah. <laughs> well, I think we're kind of approaching the end of our time though. I mean, uh, did I miss anything else? So this is the, this is the coolness of the real Josh Adams that we <laughs> today. Uh, I don't know about that, but yeah, I'm sure other Josh would be cool too to talk to. Yeah. <laughs> the, the coolness of this Josh Adams is uh, cannot be captured in just 
an hour long podcast episode. The coolness of this Josh Adams is like next to next to next level. Just uh, by the way, just for listeners, Josh was one of my mentors who like really helped me like learn how to really code, how to be have like proper etiquettes and like get get etiquette get tickets <laughs> and yeah how to come up with great names how to communicate that's a huge thing as an engineer that i think an engineer is not a senior in my opinion if they can't communicate their you know side they you know empathetic way and, and josh kind of yeah was the first person to teach me all that so uh yeah shout out from me to josh i, I tried not talking too much because i'm obviously super biased and i would just like keep talking positives about josh for two hours so that's why i've kept myself a little bit quiet today yeah so maybe you should you should turn it around and say negative things about him right we can't we can't fuck him up too high because when people meet him you know they're going to be expecting the best <laughs> <He's not. laughs> we, we got something bad about him oh man yeah my eyes are for folks that are just listening to this, like I usually do, my eyes are rolling really hard in the back of my head while Adi was getting me that. But, um, yeah. I have learned equally as much, if not more, from Adi. So, yeah, every, you learn something from everybody. <laughs> That's true. Cool. Yeah, I, I just don't want to... I mean, I know we can go on and on for forever, but I don't want to make the editor of this episode hate their job. <laughs> so if there's nothing else kind of uh, poking me, we can transition over to Pix. Sounds great. Cool. Let's head over to Pigs. So shall we have guests go first? Or is it host go first? I forget. It's usually panelists go first, yeah. Okay. I guess yeah, I can go. So I have... Uh, actually, since we have a physicist on today, and I've been reading a lot of physics, this one's like a more philosophical physics book that I've been... Uh, that I just finished. It's by Sabine Hosenfelder. She's a pretty prominent YouTuber now. It's called Existential Physics. It really talks about... It really makes you think through like what is even possible to discover and what's not. And she's not religious, but I really... I think... And neither am I, but I think she does a pretty good job of like kind of making a case for some kind of an intelligent design to the, the physics the physics that we know. Anyway, I think it's a pretty unbiased book that really makes you think very, very deeply about physics. If you're into physics, cosmology, if you're really into cosmology and philosophy, if, you, if you're into that too, it's it's it's, it's an amazing book. It, yeah, it, I literally, Friday night, I was like not able to sleep because it just, I was in a deep thought uh, after reading this book. It's, it's an amazing book. And my regular, well, elixir pick, we're going to have Bruce Tate soon, but I figured I'd pick uh, one of his uh, Groxia courses, the OTP one. A few of my mentees finished the OTP Groxia course recently, and they just, they loved it. They, they're like talking about it so highly. And they, one of them told me, why didn't you recommend this to me earlier? And I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to not gonna do that mistake again. And just like let everyone who listens to the podcast know that Groxio has amazing courses, uh, specifically the OTP one I've heard is really awesome. I think it's like 70 bucks or something. So if anyone wants to learn OTP and learn from one of the best in the industry, check out Groxio's OTP course. Okay. Now, does it transition over to me or, or does it go to the guest yet now? Because back to me, right? I think it's guest. Sasha likes to be the, you know, finale. Yep. So. Okay. okay, I'll be the Sasha then. Go ahead, Josh. Yeah. Okay. So, books. Actually, I haven't been reading a lot of books recently. I will say that I do have the Feynman lectures. I read them really briefly after I graduated. They're great. It's probably not something everybody's going to pick up. If you, because we kind of briefly talked, or well, Adi touched on philosophy, I will say I'm like super into philosophy too. On the genealogy of uh, morality by Nietzsche is like a must read. I've read it a bunch of times and I still don't understand everything. I love reading books that I can't understand after a hundred times. So that's a big one. And yeah, uh, elixir wise, I mean, 
there's this book that's come out recently called Build Your Own Web Framework in Elixir that's uh, pretty awesome. I kind of just started it again after not reading it for a while, but I'm getting through it. Uh, it's pretty cool. I would definitely take a look at that. Unbiased, it's, it's, it's a really good book. I wrote it, but you know, even if you didn't, it's a great book. And then I already mentioned, I think Exorcism, if you're just getting into things, I think is a pretty great resource. It's free. It's easy to kind of get hooked into. It's got a nice badge system for folks that like gamifying their life. It's great. And outside of all of that, uh, you know, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom came out recently. I know video games are sometimes discussed here. Big fan. Love that game. Incredible. And yeah, maybe a little bit different going outside as a, as a recommendation. It's nice outside uh, in, the, in the Northeast. Kind of taking walks uh, if you can. If you can, you're able. Kind of helps me uh, be more effective when I'm not out on a walk. So uh, I would recommend taking walks. That's it. Okay. And then for me, I'm going to make mine quite quick. Really, it's basically that, that book that we kind of mentioned before. Was it Surely You're Joking, Mr. Feynman? I think that's what it's called. Fantastic book. It will definitely, I don't know, I laughed quite a few times when I was reading it. Uh, he's a very, definitely a very interesting guy. So if you don't know who Richard Feynman is and you're looking for a book that's kind of interesting, <laughs> definitely check out that book. You will probably want to start Googling this guy and learning more about him based on just that book alone. So, all right. And then with that, it's great to have you on josh hopefully we have you back again in the future and see you guys next time that was a pleasure how does, how does sasha say it bye bye <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks bye